Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 218 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Devin's parents. I just know that you are going to love hearing their story today. I love how open and honest they are. Another thing that I want to bring up is that live stream that we have coming up next week on Tuesday, November 21st at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you remember, this live stream is on the topic of Thanksgiving because we are doing it just two days before Thanksgiving here in the United States. So this one is going to be a little different than the ones that we've done in the past. And that's because we are giving you some prompts and want you to write into us ahead of time. Now you may write into us just with my email address, marcy at andysmom.com. And tell me the answers to a few or all of the questions. So I gave you three questions last week, and I'm going to give you three more this week. So just answer these sentences. Also, if you don't have time to do it ahead of time, come on the live stream. So you can find us on the live stream on my Facebook page, the Always Andy's Mom Facebook page, the Always Andy's Mom YouTube channel, or the Grief Guide Facebook page. Any of those will work. So... Here are the three prompts for today. The first one, I am thankful when others. Number two, a memory that causes me to give thanks is. And the support I find in or at blank makes me thankful. So submit those answers to those questions. But right now, just sit back and enjoy listening to Devin's Parents. Thank you so much to my two guests that I have on today. I have on Devin's mom and dad, and I am really excited to talk to you today and to hear more about your son, Devin. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to go ahead and get started and just tell us a little bit about Devin? Okay. My son, Devin, was born on um, May the 30th, 1995. Everything was going along just fine, neurotypical. At 18 months, he had his vaccinations. And about four weeks later, he was completely nonverbal and had large lymph glands in his neck and in his pelvic area that were enlarged. And we ended up taking him to the hospital and he had Epstein-Barr is what they diagnosed him with. Mm-hmm. But before that time, Devin was just your your basic neurotypical, happy running around little boy. And then after that time, he became diagnosed with autistic characteristics. So he became more quiet, mm-hmm. kind of to himself, mm-hmm. extremely intelligent. All, you know, he was in regular gen ed classes, just couldn't understand when someone was joking, got his feelings hurt pretty easy mm-hmm. and just kind of isolated because of that fact that he was normal enough to know how different he was. And that was really hard. It was devastating. Is he an only child for you, your family? Nope. nope. He has a brother. Yep. Two year old, two years older brother okay. named Cullen, okay. K-U-L-L-E-N. And um, they were really good buddies. So Cullen now is 30 uh, years old and Devin would have been 28. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, so he, Devin was very good into researching things on the internet and extremely talented with singing. Uh So we actually had, he went to music lessons as an adult and did a couple of recitals with his music school that Kent had turned into a CD I know, I know that we're not on camera, but he had actually had it made into a little CD about Devin singing, like everything from the, the 
the Beatles Imagine to What a Wonderful World. And to me, he was the best singer in the world. But he wasn't he wasn't athletic like his brother was, but he was talented that way. Mm-hmm. He was kind mm-hmm. and gentle, just really kind and gentle. He was also um, with autism, you know, very selective about what he liked to do and not do. Yeah. So he had a few video games that he loves and no one could ever beat him at them. So if you did, he was letting you win. Right. <laughs> he would yeah. let me win. <laughs> Just enough to keep me playing uh, right. wrestling and stuff like Mortal Kombat. No one had a chance. Oh, I love that. I love that he let you win yep. just enough so he still had somebody to play with. Oh, yeah. That's having some insight in your in yourself. Uh-huh. Oh, you yeah. You think you had a chance, but <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And his sense of humor, uh, he liked to watch movies like Austin Powers, Anchorman, Anchorman anything, anything kind of crossing the edge of decency funny. <laughs> He would quote those movie quotes, the most important ones in the movie, at the perfect time. So we would all be maybe having a conversation around the kitchen table, and he'd just pop in with one of those movie quotes. (laughs) And then he he would watch to see if we thought it was hilarious, which his reaction was more funny than even his comment, because he would just be looking at you like, (laughs) ta-da. So he was just a wonderful, wonderful young man. So Yeah, for sure. That. So on top of the autism, though, he had some other medical struggles that we started to talk about a little bit before the cameras and our audio started recording. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, about what his diagnosis was and just about that? Because it's something, this is something I had not even heard of before, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Between 18 months and four, he was nonverbal. Yeah. Uh, like Donna mentioned, he, he had developed these knots in his neck and, and they couldn't figure out what it was. What he had was a, a disorder called ALPS, autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome. And it's a genetic disorder that doesn't allow your lymph cells to die like they're supposed to. So if you get a cold or if I do, our, our lymph nodes will swell uh-huh. and then they'll go away. Yeah. His couldn't go mm-hmm. away. And so it took two and a half years of all the different doctors at Children's Hospital until a guy happened to fly in to move here from Boston who had seen Alps before and asked them to test for it. And it was positive. And Devin was the 13th in the entire world that had it. So to me, it's it's almost beyond possible that that doctor could have seen it before. We believe that was a miracle and intervention at that point. I mean, absolutely. When you wrote to me about Alps, I thought, okay, I... This is something I don't know about for sure. Yeah. And I've been doing pediatrics for a while. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And so the, the treatment is um, <clears throat> initially a, a kind of large dose of steroids mm-hmm. just to get the lymph cells to die and then a maintenance dose kind of forever. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, and which has risks, right? Yeah. So they don't, they don't like to do it. So we actually moved to Tennessee and the doctors at that children's hospital didn't believe it could possibly help at the low dose he was on took him off and all the symptoms came back. Really? So then, then they had to do the battery of tests again. Large and doses put, of steroids. Back on the heavy steroids over. again. And, oh, shoot. And that, at that point, we said, no matter where we go, we're going to bring him back to St. Louis for that doctor to treat him because they knew what to do, yeah, right? right? Right. And so he was on low-dose steroids every other day for the rest of his life. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yeah. How much was he on? Just a tiny bit, huh? It was like five cc's every other day and a normal dose at his body weight would have been over a hundred. So it was, it was so small that most doctors didn't believe it could help, but it did. Yeah. And it, originally when they would boost him, like if he would have an episode yeah. with the glands and they would boost him, it'd be 65 to 85 mm-hmm. every day declining down yeah. and mm-hmm. it would be horrific. His emotions just, you know, what steroid. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Can do the mo- the moon face that he had alopecia from it. It was just a really rough go for him. But I'll tell you that so. that two and a half years there from 18 months to four, they just picture a child who has developed autistic characteristics, can't communicate, and you got to stick a nose tube down his throat. And you got all the tests we had to do and couldn't explain what was going on. That was terrible. That was a tough couple of years. Because right? before that doctor that he was talking about happened to say, hey, have you looked into this? they were preparing us for leukemia yeah. mm-hmm. because all of the signs that originally were there. So they did all the, the bone marrow removal and all these tests on a Friday and sent us home to wait till Monday, uh-huh. which was the longest <laughs> horrifying weekend of our life. 
And then her comment back to us was on Monday, I have good news and bad news. Good news is it's not leukemia. Bad news is we have no idea. Wow. Then we continued on with this battery of of things. Then later on in life, if he would like catch a cold or if he would get around people who had something, he would get it a little bit worse than they did. And then the glands would start up again. So we'd have to go back in and get heavier doses of steroid and start over. So it was a really scary time. And Cullen, his brother, did not have the gene for the ALP syndrome. Thank goodness. But we had to worry that maybe down the road he would be a carrier. Mm -hmm. So uh, when he got older, we talked to the doctors about that if he needed to be tested. And she said he has had no symptoms, no signs. Nothing showing in his blood work, so we're we're going to say no. So thank goodness we don't hopefully have to worry about our grandchildren one day. Yeah, because you have that as well. Then I do. Yeah. she does. Well, in her case, we, we found out later, right? That we Wash U uh, Children's Hospital wanted to test early on, and we decided we didn't want to know. Yeah, there's we'd gain nothing by knowing, right? Until we needed to know. Well, um, later in life, when Devin had a, his first bout of ITP. Mm-hmm which is just the platelets drop for no reason, bruising and all that. That was in 2010. The next spring, Donna had it too. We kind of knew. And then we went in and we t- we were talking to the doctor and she confirmed, yeah, Donna was the carrier, but it's in a recessive gene where Devin's was in the dominant gene. So that's why they had different kind of side effects and different severities when they had ITP. Yeah. yeah and as you know, with ITP, it makes you almost in a hemophiliac state mm-hmm. if you are a bleeder. So he couldn't go to school when he'd have it. He couldn't you know, go outside and swing, which was his favorite thing in the world. So those were rough times too. And it took me nine days when Mm -hmm. I actually came down with ITP the first time to get over it. And they left me in the hospital till my platelets were above 10,000, which for you and me, a normal would be 150,000 to 400,000. And Devin would have zero at times. So even his socks, his feet would be purple with, you know, Patekia from where his sock pressure would be on his feet. Just but I'll tell you that I'll tell you the real weird thing is neither one of them had a symptom, no ITP uh, until 2010 when we moved to Highland, Illinois, and we lived in outside of a right next to a cornfield. There was a cornfield behind us and across the street from us. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them ever had it. And then the doctors would say, "Well, it's not environmental." And I'd say, "How could it? How could it not be? If they've never had it anywhere else we've lived, yeah, yeah, they're moving this house, and bam, both of them within a, yeah. about not even a year, they both had it." You know what? That's that's funny that you say that because we, my grandparents, built a house in Iowa, and it was cornfields on all sides, right? And and my grandmother mm-hmm. had three different types, two two types of breast cancer, totally totally unrelated breast cancers and a cervical cancer. And my grandpa had colon cancer. My goodness. And then when my grandparents were, when my grandmother was really ill, they moved out of the house into a condo and we moved into their house. And within a few years, my mom got breast cancer and my dad got colon cancer. Oh my goodness. And after that, my my mom wouldn't ever let us drink the water. Isn't that funny? My my brother and I, no, no yeah, you know, my brother and I, we we only could drink water out of this <laughs> big big. We had one of those big water coolers that like businesses have. We had that in our house. Bubblers, yeah, yeah, yep. Because my mom was convinced, like four people have lived in lived in this house. Four That's people right. have had cancer. My parents were in their thirties. Right. They were super young. Wow. Like, we are just not chancing this, and. You know, I don't know. I no, no. And there's no way to call. Who do you call to say, "Hey, can you come find if there's some kind of a toxin in here?" They're going to think you're crazy. But I know. I think you follow your mama's heart. You probably she probably knew better than than they did. So I, I, you know, I totally get it. It was, it was literally. Uh, she was diagnosed, and then probably it was 14 months later, my dad was diagnosed, and then that was it. Never drinking yeah. the water again. So. I understand. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I wonder too, with when we ended up selling that house later, because my mom passed away, hopefully the health of all of those people was okay. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that'd be interesting. That'd be interesting to find out. That, <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think my dad did. Interestingly, it was very sad because we were closing on the house. My my mom was ill, she was dying, and they decided we're gonna move her into a condo so she doesn't have to do these stairs anymore. And she ended up dying, and so we couldn't close in the house oh, the day no. we were supposed to close in the house because she actually died that day. So, I'm so they had sorry. to 
clothes on it a few days later, it was it was all yeah. But I don't know. I so they obviously knew that she had died and right. But, um, but, right. Yeah. So I I get what you're saying with the environmental, just kind of wondering mm -hmm. if there's something right. right? <clears throat> you just don't yeah. know. And, you just don't. And know. I think it, it's and it, plus it's been that was 13 years ago. And I think now if you do research on ITP, they've even changed the eye from idiopathic to immune. Yeah. Right. And they're they're starting to mention that there could be some chemical and or environmental inputs that could cause it because they just didn't know it was it was still pretty new 13 years ago. Right. People had it, but it wasn't as common as it is now. Right. Because I always learned it as idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura. So that's that's right. That is the like the whole long name. But you're right in recently when you look that up, there are some that have substituted the idiopathic, which means idiopathic means, you know, we have no idea where it's from, basically, right. and right. to immune. And I've just seen that really, really recently, actually, Yeah, that that's starting to switch over. Last year or so, right? Year or two, maybe. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah, 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 in the last year or two. So, yeah, and, and that's something that I have seen, certainly. We see kids come in, and when they come in and they've got – petechiae which are little red dots and then you know we always ask when I'm on the phone with a with a family and they call me and they say my child has a rash I always say push on it if you push on it can you make it go away and mm -hmm. if you can that's great and if you can't that's a sign that that's something called a petechiae which means that that those little tiny capillaries and blood vessels have burst and made a little red kind of permanent dot and then the purpura are when you get larger areas so it's not just little pinprick dots it's bigger almost bruising Bruises. kind of yep. red red marks so that's what ends up happening with these kids so usually what i see is the kids come in and they've got these petechiae or these purpura and we do a blood count on them and the platelets are incredibly low like you had mm -hmm. said and if you've got platelets below 20,000 I'm really worried if they're below 10,000 I'm extremely worried and yes. those kids are all hospitalized and put in the hospital at that point yeah. in time so that's just to give give the listeners a little bit of background on what ITP is and yes. and you know we do treatments for it but in general like you had indicated we would have no idea really what it came from Except for the fact when you have this Alps, apparently this is a more, is a common symptom, right? Yes. Yes. I, I, I don't know if it's common or not. It, it's, it is a symptom, but I, we don't. It's related at least. Yeah. The data is so, there's such limited data. It's right. definitely related. Definitely a symptom of it, but I don't know if everybody with yeah. Alps gets ITP or not. I imagine it is real. Yeah, yes. limited because of the few number of patients that there are with right. Alps, right? Yeah. Well, right. now nowadays there are so are so many more. If you actually look up ALPS, it is just mm -hmm. now a standard yeah. uh, topic you can look up. Where before we had to really search to find any kind of information mm -hmm. about it because, and they're wondering now how many people going back had that, and they had no idea. But that's how you learn, right? You, you get a new diagnosis and then you start watching. Sure. It was first diagnosed so. in like the early nineties. Um, yeah. One, one thing I wanted to mention a bit ago is is so so from like age four till six, Devin finally started to speak, right? He went through a bunch of therapies. We taught him sign language and then he kind of learned how to speak from six to 15. He had kind of a normal life, right? Uh, other than needing to go every six months to get his blood work and stuff done. There was a lot of enjoyable time there. A lot of time watching movies, you know, aside from him having autism and struggling to find friends during those years, we had moved to Tennessee and he, he made a lifelong friend there. Alex, who lived two doors down from us, we're friends up till, I mean, every day uh, until we moved back here. And then, and then Alex came to visit multiple times a year, but Devin, he, there was a lot of enjoyable time there. It wasn't all just ITP and Alps, right? So I wanted to make sure and mention. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. But then when problem is when he would get the ITP symptoms, as opposed to when I had them, his were so much more extreme. He would brush his teeth and have you know, spit out blood. He literally wiped under his eye one time and the petechia was spread where his finger had rubbed. So his, his would get really scary because when I would contact the emergency room, say if we weren't home when it happened, they would say, you know, is he a bleeder? Is he, because some of people can have ITP and not have any bleeding symptoms, just right. have a drop in platelets and not have to worry about it. So I guess in one way we were we were lucky that we were able to know when it was going on and we could go in and get it treated. 
but kind of lucky when he was younger anyway. But as he got older, we started on medications for depression. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of when things started going downhill for him with the ITP, because Mm -hmm. I, we didn't realize at that time that there could be caused by a chemical response uh, and different medications and kind of wondering if, you know, how you're Mm -hmm. second guess the what ifs, did we maybe, of course you do. Yeah. Did we do this wrong or what, but also he couldn't have lived with depression. He was so down sometimes he didn't even want to be here anymore. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I would say then we moved back to Illinois 2010 and then, so he was 15 then. And from 15 to 20, he kind of got progressively more depressed because his brother moved back to Tennessee to live with friends. My brother, who was really close with Devin, moved to Florida, met a girl and then moved to Florida. And so that a lot of people who were regulars in his life kind of moved away and he became like, they'd text with him once in a while, but it isn't the same as seeing him once a week and watching movies together and stuff. So he got yeah. kind of progressively more depressed and that's when we, we had to do something for him medically. And, mm-hmm. but then I go back and I look now and I think that the medicines could be related to the, the ITP when I, when I look at the time. Well, so. because even if you have chemotherapy, yeah. people get ITP as a side effect from chemotherapy mm-hmm. medications. And, and Devin was given Rituxan and IVIG on many occasions mm-hmm which are considered sometimes cancer yeah, treatments. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, if that didn't always, it didn't always help him as quickly as they were hoping. So sometimes he'd have three or four doses of those things. So, yeah, you know, we don't know. We, we You just don't know. You just don't know. No, which is maddening. It, it's very, it reminds me very much. So we have a foster son, Valeriano, who got a kidney transplant. He has something called Alport syndrome. Mm. And when he, he's from Guatemala, when he came to the United States, he was obviously found to be in, in early kind of kidney failure and was on medications for high blood pressure. And they watched his diet and all of that. Well, he also had some really bad reflux. So they stuck him on Prilosec or Prevacid, one of them, stuck him on that. And then over the next year, or maybe even six months, his kidney function deteriorated very, very rapidly to the point that he needed dialysis. My goodness. And she and he moved around. He started in Texas, and then he was kind of in Florida, and then in Illinois, and then he ended up in our home. And at by that point, he's been on dialysis for about five months. And... Shortly after he came to our home, he obviously he was a kid, so he was doing his general pediatrics care in at our office and with one of my partners. My partner gets a phone call from Texas saying, is uh, is Valeriano still taking that Prilosec or Prevacid? And he actually had been taken off by that point. And he said, because a study just came out showing that it can advance kidney failure. My goodness. Like, shoot. I mean, we didn't know. Nobody no, knew. No, of course not. It was completely no. innocent. And and it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. He was having bad reflux symptoms. Let's put him on some anti-reflux meds. Now, someone yeah. had also seen the study around here, which is why he was, you know, he had been taken sure. off. But, you yeah. know, can you, so I think it was that doctor in Texas who all of a sudden is panicking and freaking out and going, wow, maybe that explains why he went from stage three kidney failure to stage five kidney failure really fast. Oh my goodness. And needed a transplant at 17, you know, like a lot of times kids can go a long time without needing a transplant. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, it ended up being okay, but, and and I don't know. That's the thing. We don't know. That's right. Was he one that that medication did make his kidney failure worse? Probably it did, but I don't know that. I mean, I don't, and we'll never know. Now he's doing well with his transplant and he probably eventually wouldn't have needed a transplant anyway. So it's it's fine but yet you wonder right and and just like you yes that's right oh yeah the what ifs are terrible yeah what ifs are terrible well and, and i think like you said you're always trying to do what's best for him at the time with the, with the data with the data yeah. you have in your hands at the time you're making decisions and you, the only time you ever think about it you go back and look back and so i, I looked at I pulled their medical records from the doctor visits and i pulled all the prescription information from cvs and i laid it out in a timeline and his medicines changed before and after his last three bouts of ITP. Was it the cause? Don't know. But it's yeah. 
suspicious, right? Well, it so, was the same medication. Different dose. But she would, according to how he was reacting depression-wise, his psychiatrist mm-hmm. would say, let's try going up 300 or let's go down 600. And I imagine, and I'm not blaming her in any way, but she was trusted me when I would call and say, he's down again. This is really bad. He can't get out of bed or anything. Then she would Mm -hmm. trust my instinct and increase it. So, but you know, when you lose someone, all of that hits you back in the face. Like, why didn't I, why did I, why should we have not have? And it, it, it's actually the first year of my, uh, after he left us, I blamed myself in every way here. I'm sitting here, the carrier of ITP and he is gone, you know? Yeah. And I thought I was treating him the right way with and the things the doctors did. were saying. You were at the time well, with the information you had, you couldn't have made any exactly. different decision. And I say that to people all the time with the information you had at the time, you made the absolute best choice for him. It's just that right. you didn't have all the information. No. That's right. But no. it's just, it is really, really difficult. I am so sorry that you have to suffer through that. Thank you. And I think that's a common thing for a lot of bereaved parents is that guilt, those what ifs, those thinking yeah. about what could we have done differently? I feel like every parent I talk to has that, you know? Yeah. I mean, whether it's, whether it's, it's me, we were just, you know, driving in the car on the way to the baseball game. And I think to myself, why did I let him go up and change his clothes after soccer practice? I should have just made him go in his, in his, that same clothes. I know he was sweaty and he wanted to change, but if we, w- if I wouldn't have let him go upstairs, we would have been on the road you know, right. a minute and a half earlier. And if we'd have been on the road a minute and a half earlier, we wouldn't have gotten the car accident. I mean, it was just like thing after thing after thing. Like, oh, yeah. Why didn't I oh, do yeah. this? Why didn't I do that? Because, you know, just the very slightest thing would have made a difference. And then I, you know, and then I talk to parents whose children die of cancer. And you think, oh, why didn't I notice that he was limping a little sooner? Why didn't I take him to the doctor a little quicker? Why didn't I push a little harder to do that scan a little earlier, right? So it doesn't even matter what the cause of death was. As a parent, you still feel like I should have done something different. I should have been able to fix this. And through three or four years of therapy now, you know, we've learned, I don't know what your stand is on this. I've gotten to listen to several of your things, but we've learned that it isn't our plan. And we don't have control. No. And we just have to suffer here now without them until our turn comes, which is the hardest part, right? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. but would I have given up one minute of those 24 years to avoid this pain? No, No. I wouldn't have given up one minute of that. So, no. No. And that is the thing. I think we just so desperately want to have control of that situation that you make it seem like if I would have done this, maybe something different would have happened when in all actuality wouldn't have probably made a bit of difference, right? That's right. It's all, all that is triggered back to hoping for a different outcome that you can't yeah. change now. And you can't change it now anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's what all of it is. Yep. That's right. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about what happened with Devin then? At, Cause it was that final bout of ITP. So he had had this, I don't know, half a dozen times at least, right, is what you'd said? He had three, so he had one in 2010, uh-huh. and then he didn't have it again until 17, 18, and 19. Okay. But 17 and 18, when I go back and look at the data, he really never got above that 150,000 level, so it was really more like one long Chronic. bout of it, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, like a seven or eight-month-long bout of it. But then 2019, on uh, September 6th, you can tell the story if you want, that's when he had his final bout. Well, it was Cullen's birthday. And we always had, he was born on Labor Day and Devin was born on Memorial Day. So our holidays kind of became celebrations for our kids' birthdays. I love that. That's awesome. It was neat. And all of our friends would come. Well, we live on a lake. Mm -hmm. We have a boat. And uh, Mm -hmm. that particular weekend, it was Cullen's birthday. His friends were all here. We were all going out on the boat. And Devin said to me, he took his socks off to put on his flip-flops for the boat. And he said, Mom, I think I have red dots on my feet. Well, I went over and looked and there was maybe five or six. They were so small mm-hmm. that I thought maybe he had, you know, heat rash or because it was 110 degrees outside. So I just said, let's keep an eye on that. And yeah. we're going to go ahead and him and I would go ahead and go on the boat ride. So we did. We went out and we all were all out on floaties and had a great day. It was a long day. And when we came back, he went on home. It was about eight o'clock in the evening. So he lived... He lived somewhere different. Mm-hmm. 
we own a home on on the lake and we have a, a, a mobile, mobile home. home on the same property because having autism, he he had independence there then, right. but I was right. still right across the yard. Right. And so he went on home to sleep because he having autism again, would never want to sleep <laughs> in our guest room or be, you know, he wanted his own bed, his own right. blankets, his own things. So he went on home and we had friends spend the night. That morning, about 8 a.m., he called me and said, Mom, I have blisters in my mouth. Well, I knew what they were. They were blood blisters. And I rode over, went, ran across the yard really quick. And sure enough, he was in full ITP. Blood blisters in the mouth. The petechia was on his everywhere, just everywhere from that little bit yesterday to then. And so we rushed up to the emergency room outside of town here and they did blood work. And then they contacted Children's Hospital in St. Louis and told them the counts and they took him by ambulance over there so that there would be no risk of me getting in a car accident or him falling on the way to the car and causing brain bleed. Right. Because his platelets were really low, right? They were 2000, 2000. Yeah. Where, I mean, that's barely detectable. You, you can really, yeah, you can barely detect. It could have been even lower. We don't know. So yeah, they, they got him over there. Well, here goes what if number one, he had been in and out so many times, the same hematology team had done his IVIG, his right tuxin, and they know that it takes several days for you to respond to that sometimes. So they had said, Devin got his right tuxin. He got his IVIG later that day, and he was spending the night. The next day, they said to him, um, that they were going to, you know, check, check his blood counts. It had mm. gone up to about 8,000, which meant it was heading in the right direction, but it was still dangerously low. Devin had said, I don't want to sleep here. I want to go home. Well, she looked through her folder and said, this is the treatment we protocol we've always done. He needs to, she said, Devin, I'll make you a deal. I'll let you go home. If you promise to lay in the recliner, don't do anything. You can't go to school or work till we get your platelets up to a safe level and you know she knew how stressful having autism it was for him to sleep there he wasn't resting so she let me bring him home well that was what if number one what if I hadn't let that happen if we would have just said no we're not leaving and then we get here that night everything went fine he actually wanted to go to his home so I let him and I I said text me when you go to sleep text me when you wake up and that morning when he woke up he came over to be where I could be with him all day so he was here in the recliner that evening he got a nosebleed and it was horrific. And it was, I couldn't like 15 minutes, to 15 get it to minutes to get it to stop. And I had the hematologist on call paged and she called back and said, if you can't get it to stop in the next five minutes, because having that low of platelets, this is not shocking that he has a nosebleed. Right. Uh, call me. If you don't have him done in five minutes, then you need to bring him over. So I set a timer. We did the pinch the back. nose, ice head back, back ice pack on the back of the neck. And he, we got it to stop. So second, what if, should I have not just taken him over at that point, but it stopped. So we walked over to the recliner at that point. He very gently, he laid still. We watched a couple more movies and made it through that night. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that last day, it was a Thursday. So it's been three days since we were out of the hospital. We were supposed to go in the morning for blood work. It would have been a Friday morning. He asked if he could go swing. And I said, you can't, you can't swing because no that pressure change might cause, yeah. you know, but you can sit on the swing. So he did just trying to relieve some of his anxiety, anxiousness from not being able to swing. And so came back home here. We ate what we could with those blisters. They were painful. And then he was in the chair watching TV with us. We watched a movie and he said, mom, I'm going to um, go to bed. I'm tired. And I, this is what if number three, and this one here stopped, stopped me now a lot. I said, would you please stay here where I can be where you are? If your nose starts to bleed, I can get to you immediately. Never would he have ever said yes. And he said, okay. And I look back now and think that should have been a sign that he knew or something was different. And he knew it too, that he would have agreed to stay here. So he stayed in our guest room. I was right up the steps and um, he went to bed about five 30 in the morning. Okay. I, or th- three in the morning. Three in the morning. I hear him in the kitchen and I hear the ice maker on the machine on the refrigerator. So I walk out of the on the balcony outside of my bedroom and I said, Devin, are you okay? Are you hungry? Because you didn't eat much. And he said, I'm okay, mom. I was just getting some ice. 
And I heard the ice maker machine move and he went back in his room. Well, I went back to bed, left, you know, the balcony door open. And about two hours later, I got a text message from him that said, mom, I can't move my right arm or my right leg. So my fourth what if was what if I would have come down to the kitchen and seen that maybe he was confused. Maybe he, I realized after the fact that he didn't even have a cup in his hand when he was getting ice out of the ice machine. He just pushed the noise and went back to bed. But from my, from where I was upstairs, I just heard the machine that was common for him to use the ice maker and he went on to bed. So two hours later, when he said, I can't move my right arm or my right leg, I ran downstairs and got in the room in time to talk to him. You can't feel anything. No, I got on with the hospital, the ambulance. We were waiting for them to come and his face started drooping and he started throwing up. So I knew he was having a stroke and I was screaming in the phone. It took them 20 minutes to get here which is another what if, but I know from that what if now, we got him to the local small hospital. They life flighted him to Children's Hospital. They told us at the small hospital that he had a massive hemorrhage. And she said to me, I need to prepare you that this is probably fatal. And I said, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Once we get him over there, they'll know what to do. I don't think she didn't just freely offer that. Donna said, Hey, what do you think? What's, you know, I what's said, the likelihood? Yeah, worst case said, scenario. And she said, yeah, he's, this not is good. not going to make it. So uh, we flew that he flew over. We drove over and we got there about the same time as the, as the helicopter. And the surgeon was waiting. The neurosurgeon was waiting. And after research, we found out he's one of the head in the hospital. He was fantastic and very well known. So that was comforting later. Mm-hmm. But he came out in the hall after he examined Devin and he said that, that he had had a massive hemorrhage on one side of his brain and that he did not have any platelets. So they could not do the surgery that they needed to do to relieve the pressure. Yeah. So instantly we were like, wait, well, you should at least try. You need to do that surgery and see if you can at least stop it. Well, they won't because they know that they won't be able to stop the bleeding if it starts absolutely. on the brain. You absolutely. Wouldn't. Yeah. So they did an emergency splenectomy and, and told us the risks of even doing that, but they can clamp those arteries or put pressure on those arteries where they can't on the brain. Yeah. So they knew there was a chance to at least remove his spleen, which was attacking his platelets. Right. Real, real quick. So they also started um, platelet transfusions, right? So yeah. I would think they so. They take a bag of platelets and they put it in. It's millions of platelets and they put it in, take a count, zero, put it in. I mean, 24 bags of platelets were used in 12 hours. And, but it was, it was, so we got there about 930 by noon, they did the splenectomy and he was at like 20,000 platelets after two full bags of those, but it never got above 40 all day long with putting in millions of platelets. They wanted 100,000 and uh, finally- At 48, the range- At 48, they said they would do it, but by that point, he wasn't responding anymore. They had done in-plate and all these other things trying to increase his platelets after they took his spleen out. That's when they believed that ALPS kicked in. So the ITP had taken his platelets. As they were putting those bags of platelets in, his hematologist believes that the ALPS kicked in and attacked it as a foreign agent. Oh, yeah. She said that liver was functioning liver against was it. it Every the liver mm-hmm. was enlarged. Everything was fighting the foreign platelets that were trying to increase his platelets so he could have the life-saving surgery. Wow. So all in all, looking back now, talking to you as a mother, I know that there was nothing no. that they did, didn't do, but I was hysterical with the at least try. If he's going to lay here and die anyway, yeah. At least attempt the brain surgery. I'll sign waivers. I'll do whatever. They will not. Well, he, here's, they here's won't. what. So here's a couple things. So when we first got there, he said, look, looking at this, his wording was profoundly life-threatening. He, he didn't say it was a big stroke. He said profoundly life-threatening, which meant he saw very little hope. And he said, I, I don't want to get your hopes up. I'm willing to take some risks. And he did the brain surgery the, where they take the, the left side off yeah. to relieve pressure at 48,000 platelets when the policy is a hundred thousand. So it was already too late. We kind of knew because his eyes weren't responding to light or anything by then. But, and and he said, look, I'm willing to try if you are, but I'm, I think I might be giving you a false sense of hope. Right. But at that point, he could see we were at that point, you know, Devin's heart rate was over 180 for two hours. 
you know, afterwards I tried to get mine to 180 riding a glider or a bike. I can't do it. It was just it's going to expire if we don't do it. So I think we should do it. They did it. And then, I mean, he was, well, he came out of the surgery un- still unconscious, but he did not pass during the surgery. He was un- in a coma state brain, no brain function yeah. for two weeks. Uh, we, we stayed with him for two weeks like that. And the doctor came in at one point and the surgeon, the neurosurgeon, and he said, I can't get past the fact and it's breaking my heart that I even did the surgery or even gave you a sense of hope at that point. I should not have, but he said, I knew how desperate because I just kept saying, you have to do something. You can't just let him lay here. And then I did the mother's. What if, why didn't I bring him in when he had the the nosebleed? Why didn't I bring him in? Why did I let him leave the hospital? And he said to me that he has physically been in front of patients when they've had a brain hemorrhage physically standing in front of him. And there's nothing that he can do about it if they don't have platelets. He said, there's nothing you did or did not do that you didn't need to do. But you know, my, our world stopped. We just wanted, we were wanting to go with him. So Yeah. yeah, I, I totally understand that. I mean, I think too, obviously our circumstance was far different because Andy died in a car accident, but let me tell you, as a doctor mom too, I had such a hard time with the ambulance with, you know, the ambulance person saying, you yeah. know, despite our best efforts, we were unable to save your son. I just couldn't get around the fact that he died on the side of the road. I mean, I was like that just like you, I just felt like, well, he's got to make it to the hospital. That's what right. we do in the hospital. We help these kids there. And so, right. You know, to not make it there and to die on the side of the road, it just, it reminds me very much of that conversation you have. Like, just do something. You have to do right. something. Right. I can't imagine that way you went through. And just desperate. You're just desperate. You just feel like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I totally understand. And I would have made a deal with the devil. <laughs> I totally understand why you would say that, even though the doctor part of me is like, that would make zero sense to no. to do that surgery. I mean, there just would be no chance of survival with no platelets. And, and I, he was so compassionate. Even before he did the splenectomy, he called us in a side room. Our entire family came swarming and um, he called us in a side room and he said, you know, I, I took him in. I did the splenectomy. He, when he took us back, when he took him back there, he said, if I do the splenectomy and I feel comfortable enough, or if the platelets are up, I'll try We'll go ahead and shave his head and get him prepared for brain surgery in case when we're in there and he's under already, we can go ahead and do it. So we were out here praying, please just let him do both. Let this go through. Let him handle this. And um, he came back out and and said the splenectomy went fine. We were able to stop the hemorrhaging. I couldn't attempt the brain surgery. He didn't have enough platelets. Because I'm sure they were running platelets during the surgery. I mean, they would have been running them continuously. That's what he said. The body's attacking him as soon as we put him in. Yeah. I mean, which is the Alp syndrome. Yeah. But we kept him there for two weeks. Yeah. My, as you know, you go, your brain goes into almost a PTSD state. Yeah, for sure. This was not real. This could not be. I walked in a hypnotic state. Right. And as you pass other mothers in the hallway going mm. to the restroom or other family members, there's almost this connection of you don't have to say a word. You just make eye contact as you're passing each other that. Yeah. But, you just know what they're feeling. You know? you know, the the other thing that was, it may not be any unique to his case, but something that happened with him was the, the hemorrhage was so bad that it, it caused damage to the, the brain stem as well. So he couldn't regulate body temperature or sodium or, I mean, all those things that were having to control all that for him. And like eight days in, we tried to put in liquid food, right? Liquid nutrition, and he couldn't process. So there was a lot, everything was kind of shut down at the same time. And like, I mean, zero brain activity. So... That was the real problem we had. We have a nephew who was hit by a truck a few years back and he's blinded in a wheelchair, but even in his, in his coma, he was for like six months, he wasn't responsive. He had brain activity. He had seizures and different things. Responded to pain. There was nothing on Devin's, no response to anything. But I think they allowed us, they didn't allow us, but they kept letting us sit there. When we got to to two weeks, um, the head of the floor came in and she was wonderful. They do meetings outside of your door. They're a learning hospital with a team. Teaching rounds. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 
she came in and she sat me down and she said, mom, I want to talk to you mom to mom. And I want to talk to you doctor to mom. And she said, doctor to mom, you've seen the MRIs. We, we actually had them sent to different brain institutes. The one in Boston, California, Chicago. Chicago. Nope. They all concurred with children that there was nothing they could do to make that brain function again. They said if there was no, if there was a response of any kind, they would consider taking him as a patient. But since there was no response of any kind, there's nothing they could do for him. So she said, we've had two weeks now of no brain activity. She said, I want to do a test to see if he is, if there, I guess there's five things they test for, seven things Mm -hmm. they test for. And she said, I want to see how far we get with that just to, to let you know where he's at. So she did those. He failed all of them. And then she didn't do the last one. She said, if I do this last one, and I proclaim him brain dead. You have to leave. You have to move him to a regular room out of ICU insurance. You know, they insurance stops covering the case once he's brain which dead. Which I didn't know that. I had no idea that they would boot you out of ICU if you're considered brain dead. So we we didn't want to do that. Um, so she let us go a few more days like that. Then when his body started shutting down because of the different things that his brain couldn't function anymore, like he was saying, yeah. they were worried about him getting sepsis. They were worried about his sugars were just off the charts and they were wanting to start insulin and dialysis for his kidneys. And at that point, she said, mom to mom, what do you want for your son? Yeah. What do you want for him at the end? You know, she said, I, I can't imagine what you're walking through, but, but you're going to walk with him through this as you did when he first came. And if you look at it as such a blessing that you'll be with him that moment, but then she said, but as a doctor, all I can do is tell you that there's no turning around on this. It's, he's not coming back. You've been told that by four different hospitals. So we finally did have to make the decision to, to let him go Yeah, because I didn't want him put on dialysis or when I know, told all them- the other equipment they had. Well, and it wouldn't have changed anything in the grand scheme of things either. Yeah. No, it wouldn't no. have. No. I told them I wouldn't agree. Um, so they didn't tell us to to stop life support. They said they recommended it. And they, I said, we can't make that decision on a day and time. They said, we'll do that for you. We'll pick a day and time. But I said, I need to see another MRI to show me that there's still no, that the brain is not. And, and when they did that, um, it was horrific. Um, the doctors, they'd never seen anything like it. It didn't look like a brain anymore. Part of it was like outside of his head. And he had another bleed going on in there, um, which is the the main reason they don't like to do brain surgeries under a hundred thousand is because of a secondary bleed. So he had one of those too. And so um, at that point I was kind of resolved that that's, there was no hope. So unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, we were even asking, what about that cryogenic freezing where they can actually take your, you know, freeze your body till they can get your brain fixed and all this stuff. And they don't, that's not something that's available to the average human being yet. I don't think no. so it's still in test test mode. But anyway, then on that Friday, on September, he had his stroke on the 6th. On the 20th of September, we took him to the garden at the hospital our, with our family. And at noon that day, we we let him go. Yeah. Number one worst day of our life. Yeah. And I hope I never, ever face anything like that again. I don't hear people who've gone through this several times. And I think, I, don't, I know I wouldn't make it. I just know I wouldn't make it. So... Yeah, you feel like you wouldn't. You feel like you wouldn't. What? And uh, right. And that's. Don't want to find out for sure. That's the thing. Until you until you have to live it, you don't know, right? No, no. But you know, you know, you just you just do. You're not the same. That's right. You just just do do the next thing, and I'm trying to walk through it. And luck was to finish my story. We found a church. You're right outside of town that I had visited one year before he left us. I walked in one day, Devin had had a bad depression night. I knew he wasn't Mm. sleeping. Kent traveled a lot. So I was by myself and I saw his bedroom light on and his kitchen light on all night. Anytime I'd get up and I couldn't sleep knowing that he was suffering and he was depressed. This was not ITP, you know, about that. It was just his daily day. And um, I took a drive. And as I took a drive, it was Sunday morning. And I saw an anchor on the side of this small church outside of town. And I thought, I'm going in. Because I knew if I didn't start running toward him, yeah, that I wasn't going to make it. And I walked in and I thought, I'm going to sneak in the, la- in the back row. Nobody will notice me. And three or four people very nicely, welcome, are you new, you know, talking to me. And I was just kind of like, I don't want to sign anything or fill anything out. I just want to sit here. And, and they very nicely let me go. And the music was fantastic. The sermon just felt like he was speaking to me. 
So I left that day with a little bit of hope and asked Kent to come back with me the next week. He came. We both really liked it. But then summer started and we're on the lake. Friends are here every weekend. We kind of forgot about that church. I have to be honest. And after Devin, when Devin was in ICU, the day before we were going to let him go, that preacher showed up at the ICU and asked if he could pray with us because he remembered me coming in that day and getting in that back row. That's just beautiful. It really is. It's and I he um we I said sick it was about two months after or three months after Devin left. I said I have to go back there. I have to go back to that church because I'm not going to make it. And I know God sent him that day. I know He did because if He wouldn't have, I never would have ever considered understanding God's plan or trying to even attempt to understand it. I was angry. Yeah. So. We went and um, they were just the same way. And when I walked in, when we walked in that Sunday and he was preaching, he stopped right in the middle of his sermon and said, he didn't point us out or call us out when we walked in. And he said, can we stop for just a minute and pray? And he did. And he just said, I need God to move in this room. I need the Holy Spirit to, to know who needs comfort and to walk to that person. We never looked back. We're going on three years now. We run a grief share program in that church. They saved our life. The God worked through that church to let us know that he didn't leave us and that he was with us in every step of the way and that we can use this hopefully somehow to help other people Yeah. so that Devin will always go on and on, you know? Oh, I just love that story. That's just beautiful. It was. That is beautiful. Thank you. And that is what you need is you need to feel God close right in those instances. People who don't know him and have no hope, I don't I don't know how they make it. I don't. But yeah. I can also see how I can also see how believers can be drawn to run the other direction. Yeah. You know, if sure. you've been if you've been kind of loyal your whole life, dedicated, whatever you want to call it, and trauma happens, we have some friends that it's happened to that oh, yeah. they just they've turned away completely. Yeah. Yeah. How could this happen to me? Uh, so I, I, I see both sides. Absolutely. Yeah. You just have to pray. I, I do too. I do too. I just feel like our pastor was just wonderful too. I just remember him saying to me, I don't picture God as like making this happen at all. I picture God as, as sitting beside you and weeping with you. Right. And just yeah. holding you. And when I think about God holding me on the side of the road as I wept, well, that's okay. That I can do, right? Yes. And when you think of God loving you so much that he sent that pastor that day. Yeah. Wow, that's a God that you're not going to let go of, right? No. And that's what I thought I better listen. This, <laughs> I better listen because he's calling. And otherwise I knew I was willing myself to not make it through this. I didn't, I felt guilt for every breath that I took. And all I kept thinking was, why am I still mm-hmm. here? Yeah. I even with the ITP that I had that I gave to him, I shouldn't be here. You know, that that overwhelming guilt, you know, and I still hate that part of it, that it was that I was the gene carrier, even though I know that has nothing to do with any choice I made. Obviously, but yeah, but it's still, you know, we talk all the time that feelings don't have to be rational to be real. Like, you know, it's an irrational feeling, but it's there anyway. So I have to live with it, acknowledge it and try to work on it. And anybody yeah. telling me that it's not rational doesn't help. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the opposite <laughs> of what you need to be told. Yeah. So, so, so one, of the, one of the things I've tried to do with since is to just raise awareness, right? I've been kind of motivated on that side of it. And, and really, I was telling Donna after, after it happened that I, I don't remember anyone sitting us down and saying, look, this ITP is serious. Yeah. It's fatal. Uh, it I, don't, I don't remember that. Um, and, and I go back and I look through like handouts and stuff and you don't see it's so rare that anyone's going to have any kind of uh, it's so rare that you get down to 1000 platelets yeah. it's so so rare that you have a brain bleed and then it's so rare that you'll die from it they didn't even talk about it and so i don't want to put fear in people but i also want them to understand that if you see these symptoms go to the hospital yeah. right don't don't hang out and just ask what you think and we've yeah. had a couple of people who said hey my friend's going through this do you think it's itp and we're like Go to the hospital. Get a CBC right? done. It's Get a simple, it common blood test. And then just don't it let is, them let. It is easy. Yeah. I, I mean, every single time I see petechiae on a kid, I order it. 
Every time. And sometimes, you know, I've had it that it's from trauma. It's totally unrelated and their their CBC yeah. is perfect. But, you know, this is why I ask whenever I talk right. to parents on the phone, if you push on the rash, does it make it go away? And if the answer is no, perfect. then you have to go in. You just have to come in. And we have to do blood work if it's really petechiae. They're lucky to have you. You're a good, good doctor. Yeah. It's a good way to look at it. I never, yeah. never thought about that. So, but he's written a book. Yeah, um, we, we started with counseling. I mean, immediately, right? Yeah. We went to couples, singles, grief share, all the ones we could possibly find. And they all said to journal. So we all started journaling. And then mine just turned into, I don't, I can't read my own writing if I write it. So <laughs> I have to type it. And once I did, I'm like, you know, why don't I just organize this? And then being, we wrote kind of a story of his life. Yeah. And, it's not yeah. a bestseller by any means, no. but at least <laughs> our friends and family got to know where we came from. Because, you know, as well as I do, yeah. nobody understands. Yeah. You can't make anyone yeah. possibly right. understand why you're doing the things you're doing now, who you are now. Because you're not the same. You're not the same person you were. No. That's right. No. Well, and it, it also no. takes care of one of the regrets I have because he and I had talked about he loved poetry. He wrote mm. 100 or so poems of his own creation. And he and I were going to write a book um, where he could tell what it was like to be on the spectrum because he was normal enough to communicate that and then share his poems. And we didn't get to do it. And so I wrote that book for that reason, told his life story, what I knew of what he thought it was like to live on the spectrum. And then yeah. all of his poems are in there. I was going to ask, did you put the poems in there? You put them all in there? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Some of them are hard to understand. He kind of wrote in riddle on some of them yeah. or like one of them, it, it was about a shower curtain, but you wouldn't realize that till I read it out loud to my niece. She's a special <laughs> ed teacher and she's, we're both sitting here like, what does that mean? And, and going in clean, you can see through the transparency or coming out or going in dirty, yeah, coming weird. out clean. It's it was weird. really deep. And she goes, wait a minute, he's taking a shower. And then we're both like, oh my goodness. So it's sad because a lot of them, I never asked him. He had a lot of these things in his own private journals that I didn't breach his privacy unless he asked me to read it. Uh-huh. And so I didn't know what a lot of those things were. So that part was sad, found, but I love to probably... know. But what a beautiful thing to have. Yes. Right. Oh, yeah. So oh, we found about word. 50 of them after he passed. So we have no idea what he meant. Most of them, when he was alive, he would send them to us. And I would shoot him a note back and say, okay, what did that one mean? So I have a lot of them yeah. explained. But the newer ones, you just have to, to he com- interpret. He communicated a lot through text and email. Okay. Because then he could say what he thought. So I was just going to show you real quick. A neighbor lady of ours took one of her poems, his poems, oh, and put oh, it on, a, on a shirt. And and it says, have hate for no one. Thoughts of those you detest make you one of them. Devin Winter. Oh, that's beautiful. She thought that was a life, something you should think of every day. Yeah. You know, don't hate that person. Pray for them. You know, that's and right. otherwise you're just, you become like them and you don't want to do that. Yeah. And he was just so good. Yeah. So thank you for letting us tell you about him. Oh, I can't. I, I'm so excited. And I want you to talk about the Devon Bowl a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So so the idea is he loved Crazy Bowl. So we would get together as a family every New Year's Eve. And like I would make up a draw thing on and hike it or sit down and push it with your feet or spin in a circle. Hold and bowl hands and bowl. So that no one got a good score. And he uh, loved that. For, for bowling. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the highest you could ever get is like 100 because you're going left-handed and backwards and all kinds of stuff. And so he loved that because it was just something fun. And the biggest thing was we'd stay up till midnight, right, which was a big deal yeah. to him. We got to stay up late because it was New Year's Eve. But so a year after he passed, I said, you know, let's let's try to do something to to get that memory. And we came up with the idea together. And this was our third one this year. And we have sponsors now. We have, uh, of course, we charge admission. We get people donating raffle items and stuff. This year, we had about 75 people there. Wow. Overall, we had over $15,000 this year. This year, yeah. It all goes to PDSA, the Platelet Disorder Support Association, and, and ours is all tagged to research. Right now, they're doing a lot of research on COVID and ITP, COVID vaccines and ITP, all that kind of stuff because it's real time. And so we just want more of that kind of activity. But they also do a lot of stuff like parent awareness and support yeah. groups and conferences with doctors coming together, talking about the newest technologies and stuff. So it's a really good organization. Um, and this was their 25th year. So their head of corporate events came. She came and brought her husband and they worked the event with us. We had a really good time on the show. The shirt you can't. Yeah, I don't know made, if she can see it well or not, these. but they gave us these out for free. It's mm-hmm. a pump it up for oh, plate, a sport purple for platelets. Oh, I love that. It's been 25th year. Yeah. And, and then, then all the sponsors are on the back, and then it said Devin Bowl at the bottom. Yeah. Oh, 
so that's their shirt. But we also had a campaign where we have um, we have sponsors like even the local Amazon where our son son works and one of our neighbors work they sponsored, and so our shirts have that on the back, and then people can order those, and that money goes to the charity as well. So I've heard that's a lot of people on your podcast say that they heard more about their child after they were gone than they had before stories people would tell them and that's what happened our first Devin bowl with that where people would come up and say he was always so nice to me at school or he always things i never knew i always your mom goes to the hallmark story your mom's mind of everybody's mean to him and no one's ever nice to him so it was really nice to have some people his age come in and just say how fantastic he was and how they like to play online games with him because they could never beat him and he'd give him a break and let him and stuff. So <laughs> it, it gave me a side of him. So I wasn't always just sad to know that he did have happier things than he let us see his parents yeah. going on. Yeah. yeah. So that was good. And it gives you a little bit of a new memory. Yes. That's right. Because you don't have any more of those. And no. when somebody tells you a story that you've never heard before, I mean, it's so precious. Like, oh my word, that's yep. a new memory that I now have that I didn't have before. Exactly. Or finding a new photograph or somebody had one in their phone that you've never seen before. It's like a priceless treasure because you have never seen that before. I I don't know if I'm crazy or not, but in my phone, I keep bringing no. him forward so that it doesn't take very long if someone asks me about my children to find a picture of him. I don't ever want to have to scroll back through because that causes me extreme yeah. grief. So I keep bringing him up to the top so that when we have new memories, his pictures are there too. Not part of the memory necessarily, but at least, and um, I asked my therapist about that when our grief therapist about that. And she said, if that's bringing you comfort, that's fine. As long as you're not pretending that he was in that picture or taking his face and putting it at the table or anything, that's okay. Because it's healthy to to miss him as long as you understand, you know, he's not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I use folders. Um, it's a different way of doing it, but she, it, I think it helps her to snap and have him be randomly scattered in the pictures. And again, I don't think there's any harm in that, but I wanted to, wanted to mention something too, that kind of going back in time a little before this all happened, two things that he loved travel mm -hmm. and kind of adventure. And so like if I wanted to get her to go to Europe because she hates to fly, I would sit with Devin and say, hey, what do you think about going to Europe? Next thing you know, he's talked her into going to rent in 2012, right? Um, he's the one like we're on a cruise ship and he's like, hey, I think I might zip line. He goes, if I do it, will you do it? And I'm like, sure, I'm terrified of heights. I figured for sure he wouldn't do it. So he did it and I had to do it, right? So, but his older brother would never even consider it. There's no way. Oh no, he stood in the <laughs> lobby. Oh, we went to we went to Las Vegas, and there was a ride on the roof, on the ceiling, on the stratosphere, uh, stratosphere, mm -hmm. and that those rides up there. And he had researched and researched and really psyched himself out to the point where he was in. We took him just so he could do that on his 21st birthday. He's down in the lobby, and he's just you know rocking and thinking, and you can do this, you can do this, really talking to himself. And he got up there and rode that ride that takes you out over this strip and spins you around as you're and, facing and does down. This. You look down at the strip while you're spinning. In I, I couldn't even watch. <laughs> then there was a roller coaster that kind of makes you feel like you're going off the edge. But then just at the last minute, it goes straight up in the that. air. He, wanted he to was in line for that when it didn't get you. I do regret that. Yeah. But Kent rode a ride with him where on that ceiling, on that roof where you, if you're sitting in chairs and it shoots you straight up in the air and then you come back down. <laughs> 200 feet higher. Ridiculous. <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh my gosh. That one. I've, I've seen that one. I've not ridden on that. No. <laughs> He's no got idea. us to do things that that both of my kids have that we never would have done. You know, the, the joy they've brought and just yeah. memories that we have are their treasures. Yeah, but so. he, he, what I liked was I could always, I could say something like, Hey, you want to get in the Jeep and go a couple hours up the road and get a burger? Yep. He's and, down and for he's anything. always wanted to go. And I love that. Yeah. You know, just always like being outside and stuff. So yeah. Did you show a picture of him? I think I've shown you a picture yeah. of yeah. Deborah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing him thank you. with us. And thank it's you. just been a pleasure. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for letting us tell our Same story. Here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful or would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax deductible 
and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thriving Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.